Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Torrance. And today, we're dangerously likely to have a Caleb and Torrance variety hour. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. This week, the Department of Veteran Affairs announced that it has issued guidance to reverse the harm done to those forced to leave the military due to their sexual orientation or gender identity. LGBTQ plus military veterans who received other other than honorable discharges for their sexuality, gender identity, or HIV status, are now eligible for government benefits. More than 14,000 service members were forced out of the military under the, quote, don't ask, don't tell policy, which was established in 1994 under former President Bill Clinton. Each member who was forced out out was given an other than honorable discharge and as such was unable to receive health care, guaranteed home loans, or disability compensation, among other benefits. The VA's announcement took place exactly 10 years after the repeal of the policy under President Obama. To mark the anniversary, President Joe Biden issued a statement calling the repeal, quote, the right thing to do, and reflected by saying, quote, on this day and every day, I am thankful for all of the LGBTQ plus service members and veterans who strengthen our military and our nation. We must honor their sacrifice by continuing the fight for full equality for LGBTQ plus people, including by finally passing the Equality Act and living up to our highest values of justice and equality for all, end quote. Kaylin, this is this is obviously um, a very positive step forward um, and a a a very, it seems like a very um, forward acknowledgement of the of the harm that the that the policy caused, but more so um, reiterating that they're doing something about it despite this being ten years after. Um, I did in the article it did say more about how uh, this was not necessarily a brand new policy. That actually this is a policy that, that was put into place after the repeal of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," but it wasn't. Uh, pursued as vigorously or championed as vigorously, and that this is something that the the Biden administration wanted to make sure uh, was a priority at the VA. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so my first impression before you put that note in was like 10 years after about time. Um, it's good that they're recognizing it and that they are putting some more vigor behind their efforts to kind of right the wrong that was done. Um, I guess my other impression to this is like, that's great that they are writing this wrong, but it feels like it's been a long time since all those people like haven't gotten the benefits like everybody else. It almost feels like it wouldn't be a bad idea to have like something more. <laughs> I don't know what that would be, but <laughs> I, I think like, it's a, it's a, I was gonna say like, you know, like, like reconciliation, you know? Yes. A but we're not bit. very good at that. That's not, that's not really our forte. No, no. Um, I think obviously it's great that they're pursuing this. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a good story. I just, I just wish that, you know, you just wish that this stuff didn't happen in the first place to get here. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I obviously very much agree with you. Images of U S border patrol agents on horseback actively moving to block Haitian immigrants from um, the U S border in Southern Texas has many Democrats and civil rights leaders expressing criticism of the Biden administration's handling of these migrants. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that the administration cannot, quote, continue these hateful and xenophobic Trump policies that disregard our refugee laws. Thousands of Haitian immigrants are at the border due to the instability that has rocked the country this summer. Their president was assassinated and the country was hit by a massive earthquake. The Department of Homeland Security is investigating the incident. Torrance, do you have any 
any reaction to this to this kind of horrifying story that has been out for the last week? Yeah, I mean the the videos that are out are exactly that very horrifying. Um, I mean, you just can't, there's just you know Jen Saki said it when she was asked about it in um, the briefing room that you know she was like I I you know we haven't they hadn't discussed it at length yet, but that from what she had seen, she can't understand any context that would give uh, credence to, to that, to those decisions and those actions. Um, also, why were they on, like, why were they deployed on horseback anyway? Um, mm-hmm. I've been listening to some reporting that like that that's not the norm. So why were they deployed in that manner and using whips? My, you know, it, it's just, it's clearly obviously outside of policy. Um, and I think that there's there's truly an issue with our border patrol agency um, and with how it's managed and the, and the way that they are trained and I mean obviously that that is said to be that can be said to be the case about all of our law enforcement um, in the United States but um, I think that's been showing up a lot more specifically for the border patrol over the last couple of years under the Trump administration and it's really disappointing to see um, some of these same actions continue under the Biden administration and I think they do need to um, I know that they can't help the immigration problem quick or as fast as they would like to. Mm-hmm. But I think that having a more acute focus on the border patrol as an agency, I think would be a, um, a welcome step by this administration. Yeah, no, I, I think what frustrates me so much about immigration and our policies around it, and even our infrastructure is that it feels like we just don't have the resources or the infrastructure to handle any kind of immigration right now. And I know that some of that's by design, but it feels like this has always been an issue. And I don't know, it's just, it's so upsetting to see these images. And it just kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the horrors that took place under the Trump administration. So I hope we get to the bottom of it and stop these horrible uh, practices. As of this past weekend, France has recalled both its U.S. and Australian ambassadors in a bold move, signaling the seriousness of their disdain over the U.S.-U.K.-Australian nuclear arms deal to sell nuclear submarines to Australia in an effort to curb China's influence of power in the region, and in doing so, effectively cancelling a previously struck deal between France and Australia, in which France would sell the Australians 12 diesel-powered nuclear submarines. France's frustration, if not outright anger by President Macron, was communicated by French foreign minister when he explained that the decision to recall the French ambassador was at the direct, quote, request of President Macron, and, quote, reflects the exceptional seriousness of the situation, after having compared this move to something, quote, Mr. Trump would do. The deal between France and Australia was said to be crucial for a whole host of small and medium enterprises in France, and that this was a strategic plan for France, having celebrated the original deal by saying it was, quote, the start of strate- a strategic partnership for the next 50 years between France and Australia. It is unclear how this will continue to unfold diplomatically. However, it has given us a glimpse into what our relationship with the Macron administration may look like as he runs for re-election in France over the next year in hopes of keeping the presidency in an uphill battle. Caleb, what are your thoughts about the about this deal um, in general, and then also France's blunt and swift response of disdain uh, to us as an ally, as well as Australia, as they did, you know, recall their ambassador there as well. I don't know if I have a lot of thoughts about the deal in general. I mean, obviously, the US is trying to deter China from continuously basically taking over the South China Sea with their own island making and whatnot, and just their aggressions in general. It's so like, I understand why that's a strategic move on our part and probably Australia's too, because Australia is probably the biggest partner that we have down there. Um, (laughs) This France thing is really fascinating to me because some of it feels like 
some of this feels like this might be President uh, Macron's, uh, like it might be driven by his the election that's coming up. Some of it feels no, it like is. that. Yeah, but some of it is like France is a player in that region of the world. And I know that they, I know that this deal was to continue them being a key strategic ally. And the fact that like US, UK and Australian officials like, like went out of their way to like make sure France didn't know what was going on is very fascinating to me. It makes me wonder like what, it makes me wonder what the US like internally thinks about France's role in that region of the world, if there is any for them, even though that they have citizens there. I I think that like, you know, you're, you understand, you know, this is funny. I'll reference Madam Secretary, but like, Obviously, that's not like exactly real, but like there's there's often more going on than we are privy to and understand when it comes to national security and with di- with diplomacy between countries, especially when we're talking about nuclear arms deals. Uh, but I, I also think that your original point and the first thing that you said is probably the the most likely uh, factor here, which is that we, as a global power, have a lot of interest in maintaining strategic power and leadership in that region of the world because of china and china is is a competitor um but an adversary in some spaces and i think that that's a delicate relationship that we're balancing and i think that i mean hopefully this isn't us just being you know complete assholes as we can be sometimes and to an ally but i also think that like there's nothing wrong with us pursuing our interests um, but I do believe that we have to do that in an honest manner. If we have the better deal, if we have the better, you know, if we can offer a better package and deal to them, then that's what, that's what should happen. Right. Like shouldn't be, you know, disdain over that. But I do assume, um, that or believe that a lot of this does have to do with the election for president Macron in, in France, because he has to appear tough, especially against the U S in this election. Yeah. I, I, you know, I just wonder on our part, like, was the reason why France was, excluded from this deal because they already had a deal and (laughs) we were about to break it or was there more you know was there more to that than just that like i understand from i uk is kind of an interesting partner with that um i'm not actually i i don't know and um i haven't read up like about the whole deal but um the uk doesn't really have a big strategic role in that area, in that region, as like we in Australia do. So that that that's an interesting partner. I, yeah, I guess I'm just more curious about like what if there was mo- what if there was more is going behind is going on behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I think this will blow over. I saw a couple stories that were like this won't just blow over. Like it'll affect like how France runs. Like it's how like it's geopolitical role in the EU and stuff like that. And I'm just, I'm not well, they've sure. They've used things against us at those tables before. And I think that that's another thing is that like France hasn't been this, the always reliable ally when we're talking, you know, international, especially in European um, diplomatic deals or military cooperations. The UK is the UK and Australia are two of our strongest and closest military allies and joint military action. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying, I'm I'm not necessarily saying that I have a lot of, you know, strong opinions about this, but I'm saying that there's pieces of information that make sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I and I highly doubt that it was like let's give a fuck you to France. It was probably a let's uh, be self interested here as we often are, very blatantly. Yeah, and I'm not sure if that's wrong. I do have before we move on, just one quick question because this is such an interesting issue right now. A lot of people are criticizing the deal not because France was out of it or whatnot, but because it's going to hurt the chances of, you know, getting rid of nuclear weapons, <laughs> especially in that area. What do you think about that? Delicate, complex. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, those are those kind of answers where it's like it, it might sound like political, right? But I mean, we it, this is the real world. Also, nuclear uh, weapons exist on this planet. Uh, we are often trying to do, I think, as far as nuclear weapons go, the right thing because we have done absolutely horrific things with nuclear weapons in the past and we understand the veracity of those actions, I think, in a way that some other global powers do not. Yeah. That it's one of those things like we're like, there was, there, I think there's like actual, a, a real understanding of, of what we did and how terrible it was. So, but there are people, there are global powers in this world who have a will against us. And we, you know, I think that our allies and us have to, in a strategic and safe way, protect ourselves and the interests of, you know, free nations around the world. And as long as our adversaries or those who wish us ill will, ideologically or culturally, have nuclear weapons, we can't not have nuclear weapons, unfortunately. And it is just complex and difficult. Yeah, that is the uh, that is the nuclear weapon strategy, right? You have the power if you have them, and then mass destruction, um, mutually assured destruction. Mutually I mean, assured destruction is why we don't actually use them. Anyway, it wasn't that the case, but that's where we're at. Yeah, same. Anyways, in other news, there are reports that Trump is looking for a challenger to take down Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate Minority Leader. I don't really have much of a story on this, Torrance. I just wanted your reaction before we move on. Don't do us any favors, Mr. Trump. <laughs> Looking for a challenger in Kentucky. This will be very fascinating. I mean, yeah, make it interesting. I mean, here's the thing. Go go wacko right wing. At primary him. Beat him in a primary if that's what you want to do. But yeah. in that state in which has a Democratic governor that they voted for, I'm not sure that in a general election statewide you're going to get some wacko right in kentucky at least it'll be a more interesting race and and because here's the thing mitch is a institutional figure in kentucky and that's why i think he continues despite terrible obviously the one of the worst and at one time the worst approval rating in congress in the country he's still won against a pretty popular and very good senate candidate in his state uh, mm -hmm. so i mean have at it guys i mean figure it out <laughs> i just wonder like election dynamics are so weird to me i just wonder if um i wonder if mcconnell having a challenger um of course the challenger actually has to be competitive but if mcconnell has a competitive challenger from someone trump basically appointed i wonder if that hurts his chances like perhaps against a democratic candidate that we put up i wonder if this I, I'm not going to hold my breath, but I wonder if this is maybe an opportunity. 
for Denver. No, I think it is an opportunity. I also think that if nothing else, if he still squeaks it out, I think it the, the state the state of the Republican Party right now. I think that it at the very least makes his bid for uh, majority leader harder because of what I think the fracture that would occur further in the Republican Party if you put a Trumpian, a very Trumpian primary candidate that has Trump support against Mitch McConnell. I think that you get a very interesting political dynamic in the Republican Party going into any majority leadership in, co- in Congress, which is not impossible and in a lot of cases probable for 2022 if we don't you know, organize and vote our ass off. Yeah, I agree. All right. We'll be right back. And we're back. So, as you all know, we have been following the $3.5 trillion uh, infrastructure spending bill and the bipartisan infrastructure bill through Congress for the last several months. Um, there's a lot. There's been a lot of developments. The bipartisan infrastructure spending bill is voted on or is going to be voted on in the House, I believe, in the next week. Um, when it comes to the reconciliation bill, the $3.5 trillion bill, um, you know, there's been a lot of updates uh, in terms of moderate um, or centrist Democrats, really. Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, and kind of their qualms about spending that amount of money in some of the provisions within it, whether that's uh, uh, negotiating drug prices um, or really just the size of the bill in general. And then we also have unions and lobbies that are backing the passage of the bill. Torrance, there's just so much going on. What, like, what do you want to hit on first? <laughs> well, I mean, you can you can almost always count on Congress to be a shit show, can't you? Um, so, I mean, the the life the lifespan of this the infrastructure package, we should call it rather, because it's it's had a couple of amalgamations um, over the past five months, has been interesting. But the two people who have found themselves front and center every goddamn time, excuse my French, and I apologize to the Lord, Kristen Cinema and Senator Joe Manchin, at every turn, have made themselves the centerpiece of these negotiations, of these conversations um, within the party. And I'm getting a little sick of it, to be completely honest, because so, you know, Kristen Cinema, she her, her big um, issue now is the, the provision in this three point five trillion dollar um, bill that apparently negotiates the drug prices too low. Like <laughs> that is one of the most popular policies in the bill. Like it's like 90 percent approval or something what is she doing i mean like that's and i think i've said this before right i have i'm actually now that i'm saying it out loud it's coming back to me i have said this before someone explain to me someone explain to me and tell me what the interest is here because if it is some principled we're spending too much again explain to me tell me your reasoning give me your idea your ideology on this because quite frankly it feels like i'm being fed bullshit and i don't feel like eating it um, and then, you know, Manchin too, the spending is an issue for him specifically. Again, he's not as, po- he's not as much of a fan of these, uh, the provision that negotiates drug prices lower, which like, I mean, it's just mind boggling. Like this is one of those things where it's like, where like the general public agrees on it so overwhelmingly that I feel like I'm not speaking English. Uh, like it just doesn't make sense to me that like, because it's like, it, it doesn't matter at that rate, 90%. 
doesn't matter where you are in this country, what party you are representing, you are good to vote for this bill. So like you have to explain to me why you are going you would like to go against the will of the American people because of some bogus principled stance that doesn't feel consistent with the rest of your uh voting as a member of Congress. Yeah, no, it it's exhausting and it's frust- it's frustrating because Manchin signaled a long time ago that he was okay with the three and a half trillion dollar bill. And like I know that like in the Senate it's 50-50. Any Democrat can like be the center of attention if they want to be. Um the two that have really taken it to the extreme are Manchin and Cinema. It's just I don't know. Like I hate to lean back on this, but like Cinema's um fundraising, she gets a ton of money from pharmaceutical companies and genuinely unless she gives us like a more valid reason, I don't know I don't know why else she would vote against this. Then primary her ass. Like, I don't Like, I'm sorry, but like, and like, 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 I don't understand why we need to put up with her bullshit in the Senate in Arizona when she's not the only, the only candidate. Like, you know, I'm sure you listened to, and if you haven't, you definitely should. If you ha- listened to Crooked Media this week, they were like referencing the same thing that like, we have to always acknowledge that Joe Manchin does represent a state that voted 38 points plus for trump he Mm -hmm. doesn't represent people who share the same policy thoughts ideas that we do and policy positions that we take on a lot of these issues and so like he has like a genuine i think reason sometimes where it's like even if he personally agreed or disagreed that like if he is representing the people of west virginia and has interests in a continued career in politics in that state that he does have to keep their interests in mind but you like I cannot be explained or do not understand at this moment why Kristen Cinema takes the positions she does, and it's certainly not representative of what her constituents feel in Arizona. Her own Senate counterpart, Senator Mark Kelly, is also a moderate, but not to the annoying and seemingly inconsistent manner that she is about yeah. these about these same exact things. Yeah, we're not hearing Mark Kelly's name in the news. We're hearing Kristen Cinemas and all the things she's against in the bill. <laughs> Mark Kelly's on board. He's fine. I, I I don't know. Like, I get really frustrated because I know that, like, some of this is part of the process. And I know that for some reason, I know that Manchin, for the reasons you already outlined, does a little bit, like, moderate kind of um, posturing on purpose. I know he does that to, like, make it seem like he is... I mean, he don't don't get me wrong. He is um, with a lot of the, especially most of this bill. I think um, um, supporting the interests of West Virginians. But I think that like being part of the Democrats, he has to. He feels like he has to posture a bit. And I like I get that. Like he kind of did it with the with the COVID relief bill at the very last minute, things like that. I I, I don't. Again, I don't know. Kind of like what you said. I did listen to Crooked Media this week. I'm not really sure what Cinema's aim is here. I can't tell if she's just posturing and this is part of the process and she's going to lose out or if she really is against the drug pricing. Like it doesn't, or does she have some delusional political future that like, I think she's the only one who believes is real. It it doesn't make, yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it doesn't make sense. And the bill itself is like so popular and especially like raising the tax, the corporate tax rate and like taxes on the wealthy is so popular and something else. And I don't know. I'm I've 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 been maybe reading much too much or listening too much to Dan Pfeiffer, but I think he is so 100% correct that we should never be using the freaking three the number, the number of how much this bill is because right now the bill costs zero because it will be paid for. 
And we got to talk about what that is. And we just don't. It's three and a half trillion dollars. And everyone's like, holy shit, that's so much money. No, well, I mean, not. I don't want. It's over 10 years. I'm... Yeah, yeah, it's over ten years, and the amount of money that we've spent in shorter periods of time um, on, what's let's say, war, um, etc. <laughs> like you know, on our military, and I'm not talking about the homes and the pockets of our of our armed soldiers. I'm talking about the uh, military contracts that we pay for for the for the all of the war materials that we're probably never going to need, hopefully <laughs> never ever need. Um, but I don't want to let senator mansion off with his special interests either because a lot of the comments that we're hearing from him are being filtered through what he's saying to the chamber of commerce the national chamber of commerce so we do know that he uh that a lot of lobbyists and a lot of uh business and corporate business um associations and organizations have his ear especially especially in west virginia um yeah i mean god they're i mean i mean yeah i mean they're being political hacks to be completely honest yeah, and I I can't tell how much of it's real and how much is um, the posturing, like I mentioned before. But I will say one thing that really frustrates me is like the media is really good at they're really good at adopting Republican like talking points, but they're also really good at just like every time that there's a sign of a little bit of conflict with Democrats, it's like it's like it's actually what Pod Save America says all the time: Dems in disarray, and it's Dems like all this disarray. bad all this bad shit about Democrats and how they can't like be in one coalition. And we've talked so many times before about like how much, how much harder it is for Democrats to like be unified just because of like the way more broad extent of our constituency and whatnot. But like what really frustrates me about all of this is like Democrats are really good at causing those headlines for themselves. Like Joe yeah, Manchin, Joe Manchin comes out and he and he puts a he puts a, a, a an opinion in the Wall Street Journal like half the time about why he can't support this really big spending bill that is going to be paid for. So is it that big? Not really. And he he puts it in the Wall Street Journal, which you have to pay to even see, which doesn't make sense if he's trying to reach his West Virginians. But it's like, why can't you go walk down to Schumer's office and talk about it and do it? Like that. Why do you have to put it in a Wall Street Journal opinion piece? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Why can't you go out to the press and have a press conference? Why can't you answer some questions? Why can't you speak directly to the people? Exactly. This is really how strongly you feel. Like, that's what I, that's what frustrates me. It's like, you know, when the squad or when, you know, AOC specifically, when they say something or take a really hard policy, you know, policy position like this that seems in, um, incongruous with the rest of the caucus. It, or with the establishment, rather, to be more specific, they they come out and they speak directly to the mic and to the camera and to the press about why they're taking this position and they're not backing down and they're not saying, well, it's this money thing. No, they're saying it's a specific damn thing. This is why I'm not supporting it. And here's and here's why and explains that that and how it's in line with what they believe. Whereas, like that is not this like that's the thing is like some of these other politicians, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, this politicking that they do that is so disingenuous is very frustrating. Because again, like I said, if she actually believes what she's saying, if that's what really her position, then help us understand why that's the right position. Yeah. Why, how does that help to touch the lives of the people that you are meant to serve? How does it change your life? Because nothing, doing nothing isn't an option. It isn't. 
there's so much in this bill that will help. Literally, it'll it'll touch every single American like in some way. Like that's what this bill is going to do. And like it's all good stuff. I don't know. It's like Oh, I mean, we were, we, were, we were talking about it, especially like in reference to like right into Senate to Manchin. I know that I don't want to like, I guess we don't want to focus all the way on them, but like I'm using them as a, as a device to talk about some of the specific issues with the way this has been negotiated. But I mean, like I was mentioning his interest with the chamber of commerce, but you know, there's an article in, in Politico who is reporting that the, one of the main allies behind the, the, the bill for the Democrats and who is putting upwards of one, one union is putting upwards of seven figures towards a, um, advertising and marketing push for the passage of the bill. Wow. Like that there's a lot of unions that are supporting this bill and its passage because of the millions of jobs that it would create and the, mm-hmm. you know, the stipulations and, and, and policies and that would become law that would boost membership to unions and strengthen unions by allowing them to organize better and allow them to have union votes online and just really empower the voters um, and workers. And yeah. I just think that like, there's there's things that seem to be in line with some of the things that they're saying, but the position that they're taking is inconsistent with that. And I and I always feel like when they just say it's this it's this number that to me just feels like an excuse. It really does. It is the number genuinely has nothing to do about it. But if you're not paying attention, then you're gonna go, wow, that's a big number. But like that's why that's why it shouldn't even be part of the democratic messaging at all. Like around this bill, I don't know, like. It's great that the unions are backing it. Like it also, this bill would also really help like women in the workplace. We're approaching like a, I believe it's like a twenty or thirty percent low on how many women are actually working in the workplace, and mm-hmm. it's a lot of it's because of like childcare costs and stuff like that. And this bill would really help. Like it would help families out with that, with that, with those costs and having kids and whatnot. And so it's great that I mean- unions are for it and. I don't know. It's like Kristen Cinema, Joe Manchin, and maybe anyone who's hiding behind them. Like, like this bill has like the potential to create so many jobs. Isn't that what you're looking for for your constituency too? Like, what's up? You know? Yeah, it's. There's just I, I think that I get like this is one of those political moments or one of those kind of political situations where like I get super like my even myself someone as interested and as obsessed as I am like even disenchanted with politics because you know how I feel about the inconsistency between like when something is overwhelmingly popular and its difficulty of getting it passed through Congress you know like that that it seems to be super inconsistent with what the average American people want and like this bill could be life-changing and like i mentioned last week in coverage of of it this between the coronavirus relief relief bill and this if it were to pass it would be the biggest investment in the middle class in over a generation and i think that like you're mentioning about how how low the workforce is with women because women are having to make again that decision because this covid uh, pandemic continues to rage on in this country because of ignorance that we have done such a disservice to American families and specifically to women in, in how unfair the economy we've built is specifically with, with healthcare, with the cost of living, with childcare, with education, um, and the lack, the lack of increase in wages and the stagnancy of wages over the last four decades. Um, I have, you know, a lot of nieces and nephews. I have eight siblings and, Childcare is extremely expensive to the point that, like, when it that it, you know, for a lot of people, it ends up making more sense to stay home. 
and not work because it would require your whole income that you're going to make because we pay so terribly in this country uh, to pay for that childcare. And I just think that we aren't looking at the problems clear-eyed enough and understanding that there are ha- there have to be very little exceptions or reasons that we allow to stop us from providing a solution. And that's where I get really you know disenchanted and frustrated with the process. But nonetheless, our need for change doesn't allow us that reprieve. We have to keep going. We have to keep fighting. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. One last thing for me is like, Hopefully, the bipartisan infrastructure deal it can be used as leverage um, to get them kind of back in line with this. Um, the other thing that, and you were, you almost hit on it earlier, um, is that like I hate the standard for like the progressives in the Democratic caucus versus the moderates. Like the moderates go out and do all these silly things, and the progressives like fall in line and like have been smart about pushing their agenda for sure. But like you don't like the progressives get so much more flack for trying to push their agenda. And then the moderates come out and it's just like, oh, yep, they might be right. Cut status quo. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's just I don't know. It's just frustrating. It's not it's not how it should be. There's a lot of things that shouldn't be the way they are. But yeah. So to move on to something a little more fun, um, those of you who know, we also like to talk a lot of culture, a lot of entertainment on on our podcast. And this last Sunday, the 73rd Annual Emmy Awards presented by the Television Academy um, aired on CBS with Cedric the Entertainer hosting. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a, a lively night. It was exciting to see um, some of our favorite celebrities and actors and actresses, writers, creators, directors um, back in this actual same room celebrating television, something that um, I think was incredibly lucrative to get of getting America, but the world through uh, the pandemic with all of that time spent at home. Um, and a lot of the really, really, really good juicy television that has come to the screen over the last year, year and a half um, that, that was awarded. It was... Um, the most diverse lineup of nominees in the Emmy's 73-year history. Um, unfortunately, when the night was said and done, despite having that record number of diverse nominees, specifically in the acting categories, um, there was still no uh, minority person uh, awarded with an Emmy in an acting category um, at the Emmys, which is really super disappointing and has drawn a lot of criticism, um, of course, with the hashtag Emmy so white. Um, and I mean... I definitely want to get into that. And I want to talk about that. Um, there were some, there's some certain, certain highlights um, like Jean Smart, who was double nominated. She's a, an incredible, incredible actress um, who has been a long, around for a long time, uh, double nominated for uh, lead actress in a comedy series with, with her role in hacks, which she is just brilliant, which is an absolute masterclass. And then also nominated for her supporting role in uh, mayor of East Tom, which is the HBO limited series. Again, a masterclass in acting. Um, just let, you know, let's start there, Caleb. I know that you watched uh, hacks. I don't, I don't know if we've discussed this, if you've watched mayor of East Tom, but oh, yeah. she's a revelation. Um, she, and I, I'm happy to report there was a standing ovation for her when she won uh, her award. And I teared up as I do um, because <laughs> She turned in two of the best performances on television over the last year, between and and was rightfully nominated for both. I look, I think it's a long time coming for her, and I'm I'm also was pretty ecstatic when she won. I like Jean Smart has been in supporting roles like her whole life. In Hacks, she finally got to be the lead like actress of it, and holy shit, Hacks was good. <laughs> like, it's it's so brilliant. brilliant. It's it's so brilliant. It's great. It's it's such a good 
I don't know. It was such a good show. And like, so Gene Smart definitely deserved this. Um, and it, I also really liked her in Mayor of Easttown um, with Caitlin Winslet, who Kate Winslet won the um, Outstanding Lead Actor in a limited or anthology series or movie, I believe. Yes, um, she did. Yeah. Which was a contentious, very contentious uh, category. Um, and there's been some criticism. I mean, there's been some criticism about that because that is also what Michaela Cole was nominated in for. Uh, if I may, uh, I may destroy you. Oh yeah. However, however, uh, you know, if we're taking the turn into that conversation, I, I, I knew she would win. I mean, not just because she's Kate Winslet, but also because she's Kate Winslet. But like, if you've watched Mirror of Easttown, you know, it's not like one of those. This is, and I've said this before. It's not one of those situations where it's like the the diverse talent didn't get recognized and they gave it to someone who didn't turn in the same heft of performance. Yeah. Kate Winslet turned in a massively like specific and like like it was so precise the her approach to that role from the accent uh, the Pittsburgh accent the way she walked the way she carried herself to the use of the vape. I mean her acting decisions were pristine i mean they were they were really there and so it's like it was not one of those moments where i felt like um a, a very very talented and deserving uh black actress like michaela cole what wasn't awarded in someone else who didn't deserve it was it was it was just a tough category i mean we're, we're also yeah. talking cynthia arrivo as aretha and genius elizabeth olsen and went wandavision and anya taylor joy in the queen's gambit um i mean it was just a tough category i mean yeah i mean they're all great like and Kate Winslet, like, I think I, I do, I genuinely believe that Kate Winslet deserves to win too, but I really think it could have gone either way with Michaela Cole as well. Like, I, oh, it's absolutely. been a while, it's been a while since I've watched I May Destroy You, but that was just, that was a really fascinating show to me. That was a really interesting show. And Michaela Cole did such an amazing job with it. Like, I don't know. Oh, yeah. And, and she won for outstanding writing for, uh, uh for, yes, that's one of my uh, highlights, a limited series. And yeah, and she, I mean, so very, very uh, deserved. She, I mean, the show was kind of brilliant in that way that like it was just something you hadn't seen before, a voice you hadn't heard before. Mm -hmm. um, and I was happy to see her be recognized in one way or the other because I, and, and the room felt the same way. I mean, you could tell like that it was very intentional by those people who were the voting body for these awards that like if it wasn't going to be for her acting role that it needed to be for writing because it was just too good to be, to go ignored. It was really good. It was so good, but yeah, no, like, I mean, like I've watched most of the shows that won, um, Queens Gambit, Mayor of Easttown, Ted Lasso. Um, yeah, Ted else? Lasso, a big, a big, a big winner in the night. Um, Oh yeah. Ted Lasso did great, great for Apple. You know, they got some Emmys under their belt now with Ted Lasso. But, yeah, um, and it was the most nominated of the evening and yeah. the most nominations for a uh, first season comedy in, in the history of the Emmys with 13 nominations uh, going into the evening. And they won three of the acting categories. Yeah. And that's I just remember like I remember when I first watched Ted Lasso, um, I believe it came out a few months before I actually watched it. And then I watched it. Um, and like, I thought it was really good. It just felt really good to watch something like that in the middle of like the world being crazy and difficult and challenging and hard. And, you know, I'm watching the second season right now and, and, and it has the same charm. It's obviously it's taking a little bit of a different route because um, it kind of has to season to season, but like, yeah, I don't know. Like 
like I'm not really surprised that Ted Lasso won a, a bunch of these. Oh either. no, no, not at all. I don't, and I, and it did not seem that anyone in the room was either. Uh, I mean, it's a, overwhelming. It's a great. Support. It was a great show. I wonder, like, I actually wonder how much. Like, I think Ted Lasso is, is a good show no matter what the circumstances are. But I kind of wonder. Um, I wonder if it's as big if it happened without a pandemic in the background. I actually wonder that a little bit. But I don't want to diminish from it because it's still a really well-made, good show. At all. I, like, I, I mean, really you could don't. say that for, I mean, any piece of entertainment put out over the last year. That's you know what I mean? Like, I think That's that I think that it's genuinely, you know, a good show. It did win Best Comedy Series, and it's not like these people you know, the actors, directors, producers, writers, creators that uh, are a part of the television academy and vote on these awards uh, are going to just stop having, I think, taste in one year um, because they were stuck at home. Uh, if anything, they were probably oversaturated in content and, and if anything, had so many more performances, so many much you know more pieces of content, writing, directing that they were seeing that could have, you know, really muddled their mind. Um for that talent, I have not watched Ted Lasso, but I, I am not, I'm not even a huge comedy um, watcher when it comes to television. But I'm very interested in watching Ted Lasso you um, because I hear that it has like a heart to it, and that there's like some drama to the comedy, and that's why I feel about Hacks. Like I really like Hacks because it's a full on dramedy, full blown, but like hilarious. Oh um, yeah, absolutely hilarious. Um, if I'm not like laughing out loud, then like the job has not been completed. I could have seen I could have seen Hacks winning that too. Honestly, outstanding comedy series. Ted Lasso. You should, I can't believe you haven't watched Ted Lasso. What's that about? Uh, just, uh, just a long list of shows that I've been getting through. I mean, a, a, a literal shit ton. Ted Lasso is so good. Like, I don't know. It's just like, it's almost kind of, the first season especially is almost, when I first saw it, was almost therapeutic. Like, and just like, the world it, it represented was just so much like, good you know it's just so much Mm -hmm. better than kind of what we're living in right now and like i was attracted to that it's it's you know jason sudeikis does does so well um as ted lasso of course he's the uh the american football coach that goes and uh becomes a coach for football or soccer in the uk and it's not it's a delightful show it's not um it's not cheesy. Like it feels like it should be, but it's not. Um, and I think that's part of what makes the show really great. Really nice. Well, I get there. Um, it's not like hacks at all. So just like, well, you know. you know what we, uh, well, no, yeah. One of the, <laughs> no, much more like silly, dumb comedy from what I understand, but <laughs> yeah, like, that's okay. You know, one of the like really interesting stories about Ted Lasso that I really loved and, and happened to hear him on an interview and two other podcasts is uh, the, Ted Lasso actor, a writer and actor who won outstanding supporting actor in a comedy series, Brett Goldstein, um, who, gosh, I, I, I don't know what character he played because I haven't watched it. Um, but he, sure. I'm going to double check that, but I'm pretty sure he's Coach Beard. Who uh, also who also moved with. I'm gonna, let me just double uh, check that right now. Well, but, but, but the story is that he is actually a writer on the show. And they were, and I don't think they're right. I think it's actually a different character. Um, he is a right was a writer on the show, and they like oh. wrote five, you know, five oh. episodes. Yeah, you're right. It's Roy Kent, and he's actually my favorite. yeah Roy. Kent. He's my favorite yeah. character of the show for sure. Um, well, and that he's a he's a writer, and they wrote he you know was on the writing team for the first five episodes, and that actually what he did was he like really thought he could be Roy Kent, and they had like interviewed all these guys, and that he afterwards 
he after they got done writing it went home and filmed like five scenes as roy kent and sending sent them an email to the directors were like um if you're seeing this and you absolutely hate it like you know just act like you never saw this and it, and it didn't happen and you know i didn't send you this and, it, and everything's fine he's like uh but i really kind of think i could be roy kent so if this is good at all like please you know like let me know and they were like no like this is this is great. Like you're him. And it's like, obviously the television Academy agrees, um, which is like, just so like a great story. You know what I mean? Like a writer who like are gen- gen- generally not actors first, you know, like are not yeah. ones to put themselves out there in that situation unless they are an actor first. Um, I think is super cool. And then obviously, as you just said, he's your favorite character. So knocked it out of the freaking park. Yeah. No, I really <laughs> can't is, Oh my gosh. She's the best character in the show. I think that like, you kind of made a comment earlier, Ted Lasso is kind of like more silly, dumb comedy, and it is. But what makes it so great is it also feels very mature at the same time. I don't know how to explain that. You just need to watch. Okay. Okay. Um, so another big winner of the night, or the biggest winner of the night, was The Crown. Uh, they went into mm-hmm. the evening with 11 nominations and walked away with a heavy seven Uh Winning, yeah, winning quite a few. Winning lead actor, winning supporting wow. actor in a drama series, winning uh, lead actress in a drama drama series, and supporting actress in a drama series. Won best drama series. Won best writing for a drama series. I mean, like a lot. And um, you know, Josh O'Connor Nate was it was a notable one for me. He played Prince Charles, and he won. He's he's freaking fantastic. I'm a huge fan of him. One of his first films that he did. Um, uh, in in the UK was a independent um, gay film and in, and it's and it's absolutely beautiful uh, called God's Own Country and so I've been a fan for him for quite quite some time since the beginning of his career but he gives he turns in such an amazing performance uh, of Charles uh, and that whole cast I mean that's the thing there's a lot of, there is a little bit of like annoyance with with the Crown winning but also I think that that show is uniquely positioned to do well repetitively year over year in these awards because of one reason. It's not a show that now has had, you know, had has five seasons out or four five seasons out and they've repetitively won drama series and actor and et cetera in a drama series. But it's because they've switched actors every two years to play the same character. So like you're getting a young, fresh, new actor or a very experienced actor into that role at a different stage in their life with a different juicy piece of narrative that like, this consistent greatness and Peter Morgan, the creator and writer who won best writing for drama series. I mean, it's, it's well done. That's the thing is like, I have watched it. It is brilliant. It is beautifully shot and well-written and beautifully acted by all of the actors in the cast. Um, And I think that because it obviously is about the Royal family that there's like this, you know, a lot of the things I'm writing about with the Emmy so, that I'm reading about with the Emmy so white is like, you know, they went and awarded a bunch, you know, a story about an old an old white family with a bunch of white actors, and it's like, you know, that's true, and I can understand how like the juxtaposition even makes you more makes you more frustrated, but it's like again, it's, these aren't people didn't suck, you know, like people did not suck. Yeah, in these it wasn't. Roles. It wasn't and, necessarily stolen here or anything like that. Like. Right, like, right, and these like that, were these were also pretty deserving. Tie, like, right, and the yeah, the only one that I was like a little like more bummed about was um, the fact that they that Lovecraft Lovecraft Country didn't get um, oh. recognized um, because it was such a unique project with such like brilliant um, acting. Um, it was and, so good too. 
Yeah, and like you know, Michael K. Williams not winning for Lovecraft Country, I've post uh, post posthumously uh, for his work. I was was a bit of a bummer, and and yeah. you know, honestly, I guess I'll, I'll say you know very frankly that like Tobias Menzies who played uh, Prince Philip in The Crown won that award, and you know he might have been the not bad, great performance. Like not it's not saying that, but I would say if there was anyone from that cast or any award that went to that show that maybe like shouldn't have or could have been most uh most challenged it was this one and so i was uh, this one was the one that like kind of hurt a little bit i was like damn okay yeah michael k williams has turned in memorable performances for his whole career some of the most groundbreaking performances namely in the wire and then you know this very very um specific performance in such an interesting project in lovecraft country right before he died it just was a bummer yeah yeah no i mean I'm not, so I'm not, I didn't actually watch the Emmys and I'm not really someone who usually watches the award shows or keeps up that often with it. Um, But one thing that like has kind of been echoing from all these award shows is kind of just like the lack of like diversity and who wins and whatnot. And these, these problems with like recognizing, you know, those who are not white and whatnot, you know, like it's just, it's just such a, it's a thing that I hear every year and I'm just like, are these these organizations actually doing anything about it? I genuinely can't tell. And like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that they always make the wrong choice, even if they get criticized for it. But it like, I don't know, as someone who doesn't follow it as much, like, what's your kind of take on that? I guess my my take on that is actually I, I was just having this this very nuanced conversation, right? So first issue was before like there's it's late it's all very layered it's all very layered like every single other race or diversity equity inclusion issue in our country and in our society it's layered because i was telling my mom and i was you know discussing this with her that so now these organizations have done a little bit better right a little bit better in actually giving us a diverse list of nominees really nominating and acknowledging and rewarding the efforts of really talented minority and black african indigenous uh, people of color and now that next step because it is the voting body right it's their fellow actors their fellow directors writers producers right um that are members of the television academy and it's like just like with everything else okay now we've seen it now we've now we've acknowledged it now we're trying to understand it now we're bringing diversity in right but that that, inc- that inclusion part is hard because now we're talking about but are you placing are you placing the right value have you gotten past your bias, past your prejudice, right? Like, is a very, very good black performance to you equally as good as a very, very good white performance? Or do you just default to this, right? Like, do you just default to 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 the white, the great white performance if you're faced with two, right? Like that's the it's it does take internal reflection and work, and it is the next step and the next layer in some of this. And and, and there's people in the academy that do need to make that recognition because there was a very just and very great, you know, diverse lineup of nominees this year that I was very proud of and thought that like the people I would have liked to see, you know, nominated and, and acknowledged were. Um but we, you know, people we have to reflect like what the, what they're voting for. What do they place value on? And, and in addition, the other layer to that is are continuing to write the roles, continuing to make the shows, to cast the black per- person in these roles, to tell these stories, um and to put them on television and to fund them. And so, because without the roles, there's not there's not the performances. Without the performances, 
you can't give a good one and you can't win an award. So like it, it's it's very layered, but I would say that like after having such a diverse lineup, it's like the Academy has to look at itself and say, okay, are you seriously saying that none of those were the best? Or does your bias like is your is your unconscious bias really coming to light in all of these moments? So something yeah. to think about. There's no like there's no answer to it other than like continued reflection and pushing them and questioning them. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, I wonder I guess I wonder what'll happen um in the future years of the Emmys and other award shows. Yeah, the Emmys I think is doing a good job. You know, no, no one's gonna change overnight, but I I did feel that they had done a, a, a done a pretty good job at trying to do something about it and not and not saying they've done everything about it to the fact that like also Cedric the Entertainer right like hosting but also there was a lot of really really awesome like Deb, so like you know Debbie Allen even though like this has nothing to do with race you know Debbie Allen and or and, and then it does also was awarded the Governor's Award recipient which is a lifetime achievement award and Debbie Allen is one of the most accomplished entertainers performers creators. Uh, of our time. I mean, she's yeah. been doing this for decades. Um, writing. It started off obviously dancing um, and writing, acting, directing, choreographing, you know, her, her role in fame was what made her famous. Um, she now is still acting and, and has her school, her dance school and is writing and is choreographing for the Grammys and choreographs for the Oscars and, and is writing and producing and directing on Grey's Anatomy and starring in Grey's Anatomy. I mean, she's, super accomplished and so like and that was really awesome i think to see her um rewarded because she's truly a light um in our community um and, and a true talent in our community um the, the ultimate multi-hyphenate in my opinion but also they had like they had a lot of like um like 80s and 90s black sitcom actresses who like were in shows with Cedric the Entertainer and stuff that made appearances and performances on the show. And I just thought like that there was like an active measure for inclusion, but like our members of the Academy have to do better and have to really reflect and reassess on how they place value on things. I couldn't agree more. We'll be right back. Caleb, take us on a tangent. All right, Torrance. So, I don't, again, I'm I don't really have something that I'm specifically frustrated at besides kind of the little conversation we had about you know Kristen Cinema and drug pricing and stuff earlier. I am. I don't know. I'm really frustrated. Actually, I'm going to keep it local with this one. Um, with Boise State football, but those who also follow Boise State football are probably thinking that I'm frustrated with something that I'm not actually frustrated with. Like, so we've had our first three games and we've lost by like, we've lost two games by less than a touchdown. Last week, we lost to Big 12 opponent Oklahoma State by one point um, in a really close game. And there was some iffy ref calls and stuff, but we still lost it. And like, I don't know. That's fine. Our team's interesting this year. You know, we have a new head coach. Um, we have a new athletic director. You know, of course, it's college. You got some new players. It's just a different, it's a different atmosphere this year about what Boise State football is because we're known for 
having winning seasons and like us losing twice in a season is pretty rare. And we've already done it in the first three games. I actually don't think that means we're going to do bad for the rest of the season. I just think we played some really tough opponents at the beginning and losing by one touchdown, you know, doesn't really mean we're a bad team, especially when it comes to our conference. But there's already like people who think that our new head coach like sucks and should just be fired immediately. And I'm like, I'm like, there's unreasonable people in Idaho. So many. Oh my God. But I'm sitting here and I'm just like, I'm like, get off your freaking Twitter and like be reasonable here. It's the first season of our head coach. It's going to be a building year. Even if we did spectacular, like, like, you know, he's got to find his groove. You know, he's, he's the guy he's coming from, um, university of Oregon, the ducks, and mm-hmm. he's he was like the defensive oh i'm not going to get the award right but he was like the defensive player of the year for boise state and the mountain west like i don't know a decade ago or so um for boise state so he's an alum and like he's a big defensive guy and like boise state is a good team we've just been playing some difficult opponents we played ucf right away and we played oklahoma state and they're both pretty good like i don't know just there's a tendency and this is probably I don't know if this is like this for other teams because, you know, you watch like Alabama um, lose like three games and still be number one. But like if you're Boise State in a group of five conference on a power five, like you lose one game and it feels like the whole rest of the season doesn't matter anymore because you're not going to get to a good bowl game. I mean, right. you can still if you lose a game or two, but you have to it's reliant on how the other top teams in the rest of the group of five conferences do. And like right. for us, like losing two games, like like we can still go to a decent bowl game, but it's probably what are you not guys in the Mountain West Caleb? Conference. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, like we're like it's very unlikely that we would go to like the Fiesta Bowl, which is like the best that we can do. And I think that's probably a larger conversation about like NCAA football and how f- absolutely infuriating it is that if your team like like Boise State has been consistently a good team for over a decade but we don't even really have a chance to play like some of the bigger teams in the country. And even if we lost, like it still helps us get better. Right. And like have a chance to actually compete like Boise state has a winning record against like power five conferences. Like a, it's not even close. It's like a big winning record. Like we beat almost every PAC 12 team that we play. We beat most of the big 12. I don't know if we've ever played sec, but like, that's kind of what I mean is like the way that South bend. Eh, maybe i don't know yeah i do Compl- actually i would love to Compl- play Notre some- Dame. they're independent too so they could schedule a game with boise state if they wanted to well yeah and in the acc yeah 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 byu is independent and we play them every year and that's always a that's yeah, actually our, always a pretty fun game our athletic conferencing is very interesting yeah right now um i just think that like clear. the whole system just doesn't allow for like an underdog like boise state to like actually compete with some of the bigger teams and see what happens like no i don't don't think that college football allows for a like truly fair and like national competitive you know process across like divisional teams like i don't you know like the the conferences i think really and the focus on conferences really i think mess that up like i don't think that you actually like wither your way down to a national title team in the way that you might in other sports where it's actually like quite a consistent ranking across the board. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's like, 
I don't know. I watch college basketball. I love college basketball. I think it's awesome because it's so unpredictable because you can have a team from nobody conference, nobody state or city or whatever beat like the number one team in the country out of nowhere. And like that might happen in football. I mean, maybe to a lesser extent, but that could happen in football if there was more opportunity within scheduling and conferences and playoffs even for that to happen. And I don't know. I don't know. Like, Football is kind of a weirder sport. It's not the same as basketball by any means. And it's easier for basketball to play like 50 more games than people who play football for sure. But it's just like, I don't know. It just feels like Boise State just gets kind of left out, even though like we've been consistently one of the best group of five teams like for the last several years. And it's just, it's just frustrating. That's all. And it's frustrating that people can't be reasonable with a new head coach either that I really do think is going to usher in a really great uh, football era at Boise State. That's all. Interesting. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. That's all. <laughs> um, mine is more just like a like a shout out this week. Um, I'm I'm sad that Terrell's not here, so I could uh you know give him a shout out to his face. But uh, you know me, I'm an all inclusive queer. Uh, <laughs> and this is Bisexual Awareness Week, and you know I just want to give a shout out and some recognition to um the B in our LGBTQ plus. Um, obviously my boyfriend is bisexual, but also this is something that doesn't get acknowledged enough because I think that with our heteronormative society, it is, it is something that makes people uncomfortable, even in a way that being lesbian or being gay doesn't because like they can't wrap their brain around, you know, what that means to be truly attracted to on a spectrum, both, both genders. Um, but they are over 50% of our LGBTQ plus community. And, they are often the invisible majority. And I think that, you know, they face a lot of really ignorant stereotypes and misconceptions. Um, and I just want to give them a shout out and say, you know, I think that hopefully we're moving in a positive direction in our community of, of recognizing bisexual people. It does feel like there's so many more people that are coming out as bisexual uh, as I've become oh, an yeah. adult than there ever was uh, growing up um, or that it was ever talked about. And so I just, you know, I'm happy for that um, kind of the, the the bisexual renaissance that's occurring and that people are allowing to step in and live in their own life, but also just, you know, respect and see your bisexual friends and loved ones and, um, and respect their experience because it's not all the same for everyone. And I think that uh, we just need to be more sensitive to that topic. So, you know, um, happy, happy bisexual pride to my, to my bisexual friends and our listeners, of course. Happy Bisexual Pride. Well, that's our show. I'm Torrance. I'm Caleb. And we're dangerously and likely we're to... Dangerously see- likely to see you next week. <laughs> the goddamn worst. <laughs>